if you guys have a Bible, um, go ahead and turn to, uh, we're going to start in Exodus 32, and we're going to make our way into a few different places, but you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 32 first. And I uh, hope you guys are having a good week. Um, and man, like spring break is so close. And so uh, hopefully that's a breath of fresh air, kind of a, you know, do what? Amen. 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 Yeah, it says the teacher, you know, <laughs> spring break's coming. Uh, for sure, I feel that. But um, hey, power through the next couple of days. It's going to be all right. Um, both of you guys are doing well. If I haven't met you, I'm Kyle. I'm the college pastor here. Two more days, two more. Um, but if you uh, haven't been with us, uh, we are going through a series on prayer right now. We're calling a praying life, um, coming off of a series we called a missional life, uh, talking about what does it mean to engage with God in prayer? Uh, what does it mean to connect with God in a distracting world? We talked a lot about that last week. Uh, but just to kind of remind you, we are titling this series from a great book on prayer called A Praying Life uh, by Paul Miller. I highly recommend that book if you ever want to read a fantastic book on prayer. It's not really long and it's not really like technical either. So it's something you'd really benefit from. Um, but I'm not really using the book a lot. So you'll get, it won't be the same thing I'm saying. So um, but we have been walking through that for, uh, for the past. This is week two. Um, but I did want to kind of give you a, a thought I had today about prayer to kind of supplement some of something from last week. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today, and this came to mind that maybe this will be helpful for you in prayer, maybe not. But I was kind of thinking about it today, and you guys probably don't remember this, but do you remember a time when dial-up internet existed? Probably not. Yeah, if you're maybe like a senior grad student, maybe. Okay, so back in the day, you know this, there used to be a thing called dial-up internet where... <laughs> Uh, you would actually have to sit down at your computer and get on like AOL or something, and your computer would make this terrible sound that sounded like it was about to set fire to itself as it tried to connect to the internet. You know, I'm not going to try to make the sound, all right? But you know what I'm talking about if you've heard it. YouTube it. It's probably on YouTube now. You can listen to the sound of dial-up. But you had to sit down, and so it was a big thing to say back in the day, because you also had to have like a dedicated phone line for the internet. It was a big deal in my house when we got a separate phone line for the internet. You could like be on the phone and also be on the internet. It was huge. I could talk to my friend and like be on AIM, the instant messenger chat at the time. Anyway, I'm dating myself so much. But here's the deal. So at one point, it was a thing to say, hey, I'm going to go get online right now. I'm going to go sit at my desktop because laptops don't really exist. I'm going to get on the internet and I'm going to, you know, browse in on chat boards or something that you did in the 90s and 2000s. So um, that used to be a thing to get online. Today, do we really say like, hey, I'm going to go get online right now? Not that much, right? Because why? Because we have, you know, a phone in our pocket. We're always online, right? So here's my prayer analogy as I've been thinking about this recently. The idea of prayer... <laughs> Not being just a practice that we do, but prayer being an orientation. Remember that from last week? It being a constant connection to God. I think it's a cheesy analogy, but I think the idea of being in constant connection with God is like the idea that we're always online today versus, you know, simply going and getting on the internet in the sense that, yes, we need to have dedicated time where we sit down and have time of prayer to God, uh, prayer with God, conversation with him. We're kind of having our prayer challenge right now. I'll talk more later about that with 10 minutes a day. But prayer has to be a lot more than simply just a, a practice that we have in certain parts of the day. But I think really when Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, he means that our prayer and our orientation with God should be in the same sense that we're kind of always online, that we have this kind of connection to what's happening on, on the internet, that as we go throughout our day, that we can have a constant connection with God through the Spirit, that we can have a conversation even with Him in prayer as you're walking to class, as you're driving in your car. It doesn't mean you're always in that state because you can't really mentally be there, but we can have this connection that we carry with um, 
with our connection with God that we care throughout the day. Does that make, can it make sense in some way? Yeah, so I just kind of thought that was a helpful way to think about it, to kind of add to, to last week. But we've been kind of having this conversation about prayer and it being that connection. And last week we talked about four simple things, and we'll get into tonight in Exodus. But we talked about the four kind of heart postures that we have to have in prayer if we're going to view prayer rightly and we're going to have a healthy prayer life. And the, and the four were simple. The first one was we had to view God as Father, right? Remember that? We had to view God as our Father, that we're His kids. So we pray to God as a person, not as a system. Second thing we talked about is that God is close, He's not far away, that He's our God in heaven. But that's not a just far away sense. Yes, he reigns in heaven. But also that word heaven can mean the heavens in the sense of the air right around us. That he's also not just reigning in heaven, which is a, which good news for our prayer life. We pray to a God that reigns, but also he's a God that's close. So we pray to a God that's close. We thirdly talked about how God wants us to experience joy in prayer. All right, that prayer, while it is a discipline, it requires work and even you know, mental commitment. And it, sometimes you have to kind of guide your, your mind back in prayer. It is a discipline. That more than just being a discipline, that prayer is for our joy. It's a way we connect with God, that we remember and remind ourselves he's the happiness and the thing that we're really seeking more than anything else. More than anything we may pray for and think we need in life, we need a connection with God. We need a relationship with him. And God's given us prayer to be that means of connection. And then the fourth thing we talked about was that God wants to use prayer to realign us with his kingdom. We looked at aspects of the Lord's Prayer talking about your kingdom come, your will be done. So we can go boldly to God in prayer and ask him to do things and ask him for things. And that's where we're going to land tonight. And we're going to spend the whole night kind of talking about the idea of asking God in prayer. And it's kind of a fancy word we'll use, but it's the idea of intercessory prayer. And I had to look up how to spell that because I really am bad at spelling. But there's two S's if you wanted to know. Okay, Um, but I think it's on your sheet. But intercessory prayer. And so we're going to talk a lot tonight about what it means to ask God in prayer. But let me give you a really simple definition of what intercessory prayer is. This is not from some book or something. It's just kind of a definition I thought of. Intercessory prayer is to ask God to do things on behalf of another person. So we're asking God to do things on someone else's behalf. So we'll talk mainly about that tonight. But also, as we're talking about this, this can also apply to you asking God yourself for something, for God to work, for for God to provide wisdom, for God to provide you know, whatever you need, you know, a job, you know, thing, whatever your need is. And so it can be more than just for other people, but it's not less than that. Okay. So we're going to talk about what does it mean to ask God in prayer? What is intercessory prayer? And kind of, we're doing three things tonight. We're going to talk about the why, the what, and the how of intercessory prayer. And I think it's going to be a, a, a equipping and encouraging time for us tonight. I've been really challenged even thinking it through some of this on my own life and what it may mean for my prayer life and my connection to God, okay? So if you've got your Bible open, let's look at Exodus 32 for just a minute. I want to walk through this story because it's a, man, this is a powerful story in terms of what it means uh, to practice intercessory prayer. One of the first, not the first, but one of the first examples that we see in the Bible. So let's look at Exodus 32 to kind of catch you up on the story here. Um, we're in Numbers, we're in Deuteronomy right now, right? So we've been talking a lot about Moses, things like that. But here in Exodus 32, what's happened is that Moses has just gone up to the Mount, to Mount Sinai, up the mountain. Excuse me, spaghetti. He's, he's gone up the mountain to receive, sorry, it's fighting y'all, it's fighting me. All right, he's, he's gone, done, yeah, wow, it's fighting me in my speech too. He's gone up the mountain to receive the law. Because the Exodus has just happened. They've come out of Egypt. Moses, you know, they got to, go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. And he's up there for way longer than they anticipate. He's up there for how long? Anybody know how long he's up there? 
For, yeah, 40 days. He's up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time to be like, hey, I'm going to go talk to God for a bit. Like, if your friend went and prayed and said, I'm going to go pray for like a little bit, and he's gone for 40 days, you're probably really worried, right? So, so he goes up the mountain and, and, pray, and talks to God, has this incredible encounter with the Lord, but the people of Israel are left kind of at the base of the mountain. And so what do they begin to think? Moses is probably dead, right? He's, something's, God has either struck him down or something's happened. He's probably not coming back. So what do they do? They do the most natural thing you would ever think, right? They build a golden calf. You know, they, that's what we all would assume to do. So let's look at this in verses 32, 1 through 14. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this text. I think it's a great example for us. Read with me um, Exodus 32, 1 through 14. It says this, So when the people saw that Moses delayed, a.k.a. was there 40 days on the mountain, he delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! It's like, I guess, hey, get up and do this. But up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Which, that's a major disrespect. Like, he just led you out of Egypt, and now you're like, eh, I don't know what happened to him. We're going to do something else now. It's not cool. All right, but verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that, they were, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Pause for a second. So obviously terrible idolatry is happening. We, I think we get that. We've heard the Sunday school lessons. But I, I, I find it fascinating when it says they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is not like playing kickball in the field. This is like debauchery, wildness. There's all kinds of sinful things likely happening in this moment, okay? Um, it's not just rising up to dance, you know, which as Baptists, we don't think that's right either, right? So I'm kidding. It's not really a thing in Baptist life. I promise. I've had so many, so many people ask me, do Baptists really not believe in dancing? It's not actually. A... <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is spring break 3000 BC. Yes. All right. Go to verse seven. Okay. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, which I love that. He says, for your people, not my people. This is like a married couple fighting over the kid when he does something dumb. Like I'm sure at some point in life, Haley will say, Kyle, your son did this. It's like, well, we, this is, you know, it's both of our kids. But, you know, you know this, this is interesting, this kind of dialogue they're having. But God says to Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God's saying, okay, I've seen their idolatry, what's happening. How about we do this? I will just go down there. I'm going to smite them in in the most biblical sense of the word. I'm going to wipe out these people. We'll hit a hard reset. We'll start over with you, Moses. It'll be a new, you know, it'll be Israel 2.0. What do you think? And here's how Moses responds. Verse 11 says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised. I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses is going back and he's like kind of arguing against God on God's own character and God's own promises not to do this. He's like, God, if you do this, the Egyptians are going to think you brought them out to kill them and your glory is not going to be as lifted up. Like, what, why would you do this, God? And look at verse 14. This is an incredible verse. And the Lord, what does your translation say there? The Lord what? Relented? Anybody have repented in yours? Yeah, some say repented, which doesn't mean he had to repent from sin. It means he just turned around and changed his mind. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's an incredible verse because regardless of what your translation says, I like relented better. But whatever your translation says, the idea is this, is that Moses goes before God and says, God, I know you said you're going to do this, but please don't. On these reasons, don't do it. And what does God do? God changes his mind. Like God says, no, I'm going to do this, but no, actually, because you interceded for the people, that word's not used there, but that's what's happening. Because you interceded, I'm going to change my course. I'm going to do something different. And we see this idea of God responding to our prayers and, and taking a different action all over the Bible. It's, the Bible's full of people doing this, lots of Old Testament stories, but the Bible's also full of commands, where God says, if you'll call out to me, I'll respond and do something. Think, think about one of the classic, you know, um, revival verses. Second, I put this on your notes, but Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. He's saying, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. And that, by the way, that, that my people, it's not America. I'm sorry. That's people of Israel. <laughs> and they're in the midst of judgment and exile and being punished by God. And God says, if you respond in this way, I will change course and I will do this instead. And the Bible's full of verses like that. Now, you may be here tonight and be like, okay, wait. So I got my theology hat on. How does this fit into God's sovereignty? How does, how does it work? That if God really knows what we, what we need before we ask it, if God knows the future, all these things, which are all true, how does this fit together? Well, I'm not going to go super in-depth with that tonight because we could spend weeks trying to figure that out, which we, it's in the mystery of God. But just for a moment, let me just kind of give you a, a helpful way to think about it. Um, anytime I get stuck on the idea of God's sovereignty versus our own responsibility in life, I like to pack it into a very simple phrase. It's this, is that God is sovereign, but we're responsible. That God is sovereign, but we're responsible for all things in life. And in, in, in that, we're not responsible for all things, but you know what I mean. Um, but the Bible holds both those things to be true. The Bible upholds our own free will and responsibility, but also it upholds God's sovereignty and his oversight of all things, his guiding of all things. And there's, there's a tension there that we, you know, for years and years have had theological debates about, like Calvinism and Arminianism and free will and predestination. And we're not getting into all that tonight. That's a different conversation, but there's a tension there. And I think one of the most helpful verses to consider is this. Um, I, I wrote it down so you don't have to look it up, but Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And I love that because basically what it says is this. There's stuff that only God knows. There are secret things of his will that are a mystery to us. 
And they're always going to be a mystery, at least until new creation. Maybe God will reveal more of it to us. But for now, we focus on the things that are revealed to us to do the work, do the things that God has revealed to us. So while you know, it may be hard to fit the idea of God's sovereignty and him responding and changing his course in prayer together, that's a hard box to fit into, it's true. And just because there's tension there doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Tension is really helpful in many ways. A guitar can't work without tension. It has tensions on the string to produce a good sound. In the same way, we hold things in tension sometimes because it really helps us in the end. Okay, that's a weird analogy, but I think it works. So we can hold them in tension. I'm a guitar player, so it made sense in my head, okay? Um, And there's great mysteries in this, and we don't have to understand it, but when it comes to intercessory prayer, the sovereignty of God does not, you know, dismiss us from praying. It shouldn't discourage us from praying. It should encourage us to pray. That we're praying to our Father in heaven that is in control of all things, that can respond when we pray, and that we can trust him. I love the way that David Platt says it. I'm going to quote him a couple of times. I read a great article by him about this that I I thought was really helpful. But uh, David Platt says, he says, The perfections of God are unchanging. The purposes of God are unchanging. God's promises are unchanging. But God's plans are unfolding. That God's character, his plans, his purposes are all unchanging. They are established from the beginning of time, from even before time began. But yet his plans are unfolding, and he invites us into being a part of that. And that fits in somehow with his sovereignty. And it doesn't mean that God, he doesn't know the future. It doesn't mean that God, um, you know, uh, is kind of open-ended in this, you know, in his moving, you know, time to a conclusion. But it means that we get to work alongside God in his plans unfolding. So his sovereignty shouldn't discourage us from praying. But another quote here from Platt that I thought is helpful, kind of on that, he said it this way. I love the way he says it. He says, prayer is an invitation to join with God in effectively shaping the course of history. Through prayer, God has called you and me not to watch history. We're not just passive, right? But he says, but to shape history for the glory of his great name. And honestly, I don't think about prayer that way most of the time. I don't think about prayer as a way that I join with God in shaping history and shaping what's coming to be. Not that I have some kind of magical prayer. I'm not saying we're all prosperity gospel preachers where you pray something into existence and you know, just will it to be. Not, not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that we get to join alongside God in prayer and that our prayers are a way that God really kind of directs history and that we get to work alongside him in that way. So prayer is powerful. And that'll change the way you pray when you begin to think that, okay, if God really invites me to ask certain things and he's going to respond in, uh, in a certain way because of what I pray, that means I really should be pretty serious about prayer. Like if I'm serious about, you know, having family members that don't know Christ and I want to see them come to know Jesus, I need to pray about it. Like if I don't pray about it, who knows what will happen? But God is saying he responds to prayer. So we have to be committed and diligent in our prayer, which we'll get to more later. Um, but I think that's a really powerful way to think about that prayer isn't just this passive thing that will, what's going to happen is going to happen. It's all fatalism. And we just kind of resign to that. But no, God responds to prayer. And we have a responsibility. We have a necessity. That when we don't pray and ask God to do things, not only does God not promise to do stuff, but I think when we don't pray about certain things, that really it shows, I know in my life, it shows almost a arrogance and a kind of, uh, the idea that I think I can do it on my own. And so when we don't pray, we show that we think we can accomplish stuff on our own, but Jesus reminds us, I gave this here to you, but John fifteen five, in that verse, Jesus says this, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. It's like, it's the hard truth. Apart from him, we can do stuff, right? But nothing of like eternal spiritual good. That apart from him, we can do nothing. But if we live a life of prayerlessness, we're pretending like we can do something, which isn't true according to the words of Jesus. James 4, 4, 2, and 3, 
He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is saying to the church uh, there in Jerusalem at the time, that you don't have things because you haven't prayed about it. You don't have things because you haven't asked about it. And even when you do ask, you ask, you ask selfishly with wrong motives, not according to God's will, so you don't, you don't have. So asking is necessary for having. Uh, even consider Mark 9.29. In Mark 9, the disciples are trying to imitate Jesus. They come across as one person who is uh, oppressed by a demonic spirit. And they go over and they try to cast out the demon and nothing will happen. They can't cast the demon out, no matter what they do. And it's kind of embarrassing, you can imagine, because they're supposed to be the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus comes over, he casts out the, the demonic spirit, and this is what he says in Mark nine twenty nine. He says, and Jesus said to them, this kind, this kind of demon, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some translations would say uh, prayer and fasting, which fasting kind of sharpens our prayer. But he says this kind can only be driven out by prayer. So apparently prayer has this sharpening power in our own spiritual lives. And when we neglect prayer, we're missing out on that power. We're missing out on untapped you know, spiritual energy that we can be involved with in life. Uh, yet again, David Platt says this. He says, when we don't pray, we try to accomplish the work of God without the power and presence of God. And that hit me hard because it's so easy for me even in ministry, to, to go about kind of routines of, of church stuff and not pray about it, not ask for God to give me wisdom and guidance, not ask for God to, you know, uh, speak through me, not ask for God to, um, to God, give blessing and wisdom. And I know for us, it's so easy to go through life and kind of just assume that God's cool with things and not really ask for, for guidance and not ask for him to move. You know, when you have, to do gospel conversations again, if you have a, a chance to share the gospel with, with a friend, how often do we pray about that opportunity before we walk into it? Versus how often do we maybe kind of rely on our own ability and, and the vocabulary we have and the, the models we've memorized, things like that. Those aren't bad things to have, but are we really putting it before God, saying, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I need you to work right now. And that's the posture we have in prayer. Because the thing is, prayer is not a last resort. Really, prayer is the work. And I have to remind myself of this a lot, and I've probably told some of you this when we're talking about things sometimes. My natural inclination sometimes, when things get kind of like, you know, negative and almost kind of seem like there's nothing we can do. I've caught myself saying, well, you know, at least we can pray. You know, we, we can pray. And it's a true statement, but I don't like that phrase because it makes it sound like prayer is like, well, the only thing we can do now is pray. You know, we've kind of throw it up to, well, I guess since I can't do anything else, I'll pray. Which honestly, if prayer is this powerful, according to God's word, then prayer is the work. You know, more than anything else, we should be praying. Not throwing up prayer is like a thing we kind of say, well, yeah, I, I guess I can pray. That's the least I can do, right? But that's the, the most we can do, really. Um, and prayer is the, the first thing we should do before we move on to any kind of work because it's a way that we join with God to shape history. It's that big of a deal. So in prayer, we have an opportunity to partner with God and what he's doing around the world. So you may wonder, man, I'm not sure if I can ever really play an influence about what's happening in, I'll, I'll speak currently right now, like China, coronavirus, Italy, coronavirus. You may think, man, I don't know. That breaks my heart. It's happening. I have no idea what I can do. Like, I know nothing about medicine. I can't do anything about that situation. You can do a lot more than you think. You can pray. And that sounds like the most Sunday school Jesus juke answer ever. But I get it. it re- but if prayer is really that important and it's that significant, we can pray about those things. You think, man, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever get, be able to get over to the certain country, the Middle East, the 1040 window, to be involved in the gospel. Well, you know what? You can pray about God opening the hearts of people there. You can pray about the gospel going forth there. That doesn't mean that prayer is all we do, but prayer is a significant work, and we can be a part of what God's doing around the world through prayer. 
It's a big thing. All right, second thing we see besides the why, that's the why we pray, uh, because on our own we can't do anything. Second thing we see is what we intercede about. Okay, so what do we pray about? Well, I gave you Philippians 4, 6 here. I love the NLT translation of this. NLT says it this way. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. And I love that. You may ask, okay, what do I intercede about? What do I pray about? Honestly, besides giving you a list, just pray about everything. Like, whatever God prompts your heart to think about and care about, pray about those things. I think our, sometimes our inclination in the church is to think either God is too big for some of our small problems, or God is, you know, maybe uh, too occupied, or maybe we, we think too smallly about our problems and don't think about the big stuff. But God is the God of the big, and he's the God of the small. He's the God of the really big coronavirus, you know, world peace kind of issues. We pray about those. He's also the God of your tests and your school and your relationship problems and your dating struggles, you know, and, and your, all those things. The God's the God of the big and the small, and he wants us to come to him about all those things. You know, the, the big things and the small things. So when we think about what to pray about, I think the best thing is what's on your heart? What's weighing on your heart? What do you, what's concerning you right now? Don't try to pretend, you know, that you're not stressed out about your, a test or you're not really um, hurt about a thing with your family happening. Don't go to God and, and forget about that and just pray about, you know, missionaries in China. You should pray about them too, but don't think God doesn't know what's on your heart and he doesn't want you to come to him and talk with him about that. You know, we should have balance in our prayer life, but we also shouldn't ignore the things that are going on in our hearts. We should bring those to God. That's what he wants us to do. That's why Philippians 4 says to pray about everything, you know, because that's what God wants us to do is to come to him in those things. But as we pray, of course, we have to pray that his will is done because many times we can be selfish in our prayers, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I think one thing I've learned a lot recently thinking about prayer is this, is that what we pray about the most reveals what's most important to us. The things that we find our prayers kind of being centered around, honestly, I think it reveals many times the things that are most important for us. Because, you know, many times we pray for sick and struggling friends and family. We pray for good grades. We pray for a good job. And those are all things you should pray for. Do not hear me wrong. Those are awesome things that you definitely should pray for. Don't pray for an A if you didn't study. It's not really how it works, okay? (laughs) Well, you know, but you can pray for God to guide you in school. Um, But, you know, in my life and in your life, do most of our prayers and the things we mainly pray for, do they really reveal that the thing we prize the most is that we and our friends and family are just healthy, safe, and happy? Because if that's all we're ever praying about, for God, protect this person, keep them healthy and safe, and do this, is that showing that really what we care about more than anything else is just being healthy, safe, and happy for ourselves and for the people around us? And I've been challenged to think about that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for those things. I mean, I pray every day for Haley that God protects her in Jude and blesses her throughout the day. I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I've been challenged to think, you know, are my prayers too small? Am I, am I limited in my thinking about what prayer is and what I should be praying about? Because how often do we pray for people like your lost roommate, for opportunities to share the gospel? You know, how do you, often do you pray for yeah, this church? I don't pray enough for Alberta and for the leaders around us? How often do you pray for the persecuted church around the world? How often do you pray for the billions of people around the world who have never even heard the name of Jesus? I'm not saying this to guilt trip you or wear you down and burden you down. I'm just saying, are you praying too small? Have you thought too limited in your your prayers? And I know I have many times. So how are your prayers revealing the things that maybe are the most important to you? And how can prayer be a tool that God uses to change that and to shape you? Because if we really believe that prayer means that we get to partner with God in shaping the future, then we'll pray boldly. We'll pray boldly. We'll ask big prayers. 
For just a brief moment, though, what about unanswered prayer? What about, what about the prayers that we seem to pray for weeks and weeks and months and years and years, and God doesn't seem to answer them? That's a really hard question. We could spend a whole night talking about it. But here's the thing, and we know this, but God's answers to our prayers are obviously not always what we expect. He may not give us what we ask. But here's the thing, and I heard someone at Pursue and a prayer breakout say this, and I love this idea, is that in prayer, God doesn't always promise to provide us an answer to our prayer. He definitely doesn't promise to provide us what we ask in prayer. But one thing he always promises to provide in prayer is peace. He always promises to provide peace in prayer. That's what Philippians 4 shows us. And so while you may pray about an issue and God may never respond in the way you want him to in answering that, I can guarantee you that praying about an issue will give you more peace about it, that God will shape your heart to care more about that issue. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed about, um, prayed for a person that I'm struggling with, you know, maybe I'm frustrated with them or maybe I'm just, you know, realizing that I need to talk more about them with spiritual things and I begin to pray more um, about them. And really over time, my mind begins to go more toward that person throughout the day. I care more about them. I find I love them more. And just praying for people will change your attitude towards somebody and God will use it in a really powerful way. He will. But the biggest example, I think for me in terms of unanswered prayer and the biggest encouragement is consider Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Consider that story that Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows what's about to happen. He, said, he knows the torment he's about to experience, and he prays this simple but profound, profound prayer. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that blows my mind, because think about it. Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? He's God, and, um, he's God and man combined somehow in the mystery of God. So he's fully God. So Jesus knows exactly what has to happen, right? He knows that he has to go to the cross to die for the forgiveness of the world. He knows that's coming. But yet he's fully man, right? And he's feeling the full weight of anxiety, you know, and just burden about going to the cross. He knows the torment he's about to face. And in light of all that, and knowing what has to happen, he still prays to God and still asks God to consider doing something differently. To let this cut pass from him, that maybe the world could be saved in some other way. But he also prays for God's will to be done. I think it's a powerful story because if Jesus, who knew the mind of God more clearly than we will ever know, because he is God, if Jesus prayed in that way, then we who are not Jesus, how much more boldly should we pray and go to God and ask him to do things? We don't know what his will is. We don't know what his future, the future holds. So if Jesus had that attitude in prayer of submission and even asking God to consider something different, how much more bold should we be in our prayers? Does that make sense? This has been a very convicting thing in my life. And really, honestly, we can trust that just like Jesus prayed, his will be, will be done. That it may not always be what we want in our own comfort and flesh, just like Jesus knew the torment he was facing, but yet he knew what had to be done. But God will answer in the best way according to his will. It may not be the, the best way for our own comfort and happiness, and we'll talk more about, about that in a minute too, but he's going to answer according to his, to his will and his eternal wisdom. Last thing, and we'll be done. How we intercede. If you have a... Um, our Bible's still open. Go ahead and turn to Luke 11. We're going to look at this for just a brief moment. Luke 11, 1 through 8. This is kind of the uh, bigger section of what we looked at last week with the shorter version of the Lord's Prayer. But I love this story and this picture that Jesus paints about how we come to God in prayer and intercession. All right, let's read this together. I'll start in verse 1, read through the short Lord's Prayer, but we're really going to focus on the second half, Okay says this, it says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins 
For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. We'll come back to those verses next week and talk more about other kinds of prayer. Prayers of confession. Prayers um, of thanksgiving. All things like that. But next verses. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. This is a really weird story. Like, who comes to someone at midnight and says, hey, I need some bread? Like, maybe college students are like, hey, I needed some insomnia cookies at midnight. You know, I don't know. But it seems, it seems weird, but we'll roll with it. Okay. Next verse. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I will soon know what it's like to have put your kids down and don't want to be bothered at my door. All right. So he says, I cannot get up and give you anything. All right. But Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, Yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I love this story because it's really funny. Like you, you may not realize how funny Jesus was. He was a great speaker. He used humor all the time in his stories. We'll see this even more in the next section here. But it's just kind of, of a funny picture. But really what he tells us here is this. He says part of our prayer and part of our intercession is this. That we're persistent. That we persevere in prayer. That we don't give up. Now, Jesus is not saying that we, like, nag God into answering our prayer, like he doesn't really want to do it, and we had to ask him over and over and over again, and he finally, like, gives in. That's not the point. But he's saying that we have to come to him boldly and persistently in prayer. And like I said, many times as we come to him persistently and boldly, not only does God respond, but he also shapes our own hearts. That we can't just say, I'll pray about this once and then move on. But many times God wants us to commit and have a posture of persistence in prayer. So not only he can shape our hearts, but also he can guide us and give us wisdom in how to take next steps in that decision. And so it's much more of a process than this instant. I put in my prayers like a dollar bill in a Coke machine. God sends out the answer, but it's more of a process that we commit to. But look on the next verses to kind of keep unpacking this. Uh, Verses 8 through 13. Jesus says this, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In the Greek, those are participles. Isn't that, Jacob, I-N-G words are participles, right? Yeah, okay, good. I didn't know grammar. Okay. Yeah, in the Greek, those are actually I-N-G words. So actually, it's more like, keep asking, and it will be given to you. You would keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. So there's this idea of persistence there. But keep on going. He says, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. I love this story here. What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, which I don't know if Jude will ever ask me, hey, dad, can I have a fish? I'm like, maybe in like a bowl. I don't know, but like strange. But instead of giving him a fish, will he give him a serpent? Which is supposed to be funny. Like, what? Like, how can I have a fish? Here's a snake instead. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's supposed to be weird. Like, he's not going to give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, another strange thing, is he going to give him a scorpion? Like, what the heck? Like, who's, who's like juking your kid with, with scorpions instead of eggs? That's a terrible dad, okay? I don't get that. And that's the point. It's supposed to be funny. Jesus is a funny guy, all right? Um, he says, then, if you then, and I love this, if you who are evil, thank you, Jesus, for being honest, I guess. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The version of this in Matthew says, how much more will your Father uh, give good gifts to those who ask him? So part of our prayer is not only persistence, but it's a prayer of faith and trust in God that he only gives good gifts. He only gives good gifts. And even in the no's he provides sometimes, even in the answers that aren't the answers we want, that God gives good gifts, that he is guiding everything 
to a good conclusion, that he's working all things, not in like, a, oh crap, let me kind of figure out this bad stuff that happened and make it good, but he's actively working all things for, the, for his glory and for our good. He's working that in the process. But honestly, many times, the worst thing that, that we could ever have happen to us is for God to always say yes to our prayers, right? If God always said yes to everything you prayed for, it would be terrible. If you need examples, like go watch Aladdin. That does not, in, does not work out well if you always get what you ask for, okay? Most genie stories in all mythology. If you ever just get whatever you want, it always is bad because you ask selfishly many times. Um, but the worst thing God can do is always say yes to our prayers, But he wants us to ask him because, honestly, in that process, we draw near to him. We draw near to him. And I know some of y'all, you've got things in your life you're praying about, and you feel like God has not responded, and you feel like, does God even care? Does God hear me? I want to tell you tonight that God cares, that like Colby says all the time, that God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he cares about what's going on in your life. He may not be answering the prayer you're praying in a way that, that you would like, but know that he is not neglecting you, that he is working all things for your good, your ultimate good, for his glory, And even things like healing, when you have a sick family member that passes away, sometimes his best healing is to let that person move on to be with him. And there's all kinds of questions we can ask with that. But know that he hears, he cares, and he knows. All right? But one more, a few more things and we'll be done. Um, This idea kind of brings up one more thing I think is important. One question we have about prayer many times is this. What does it mean when we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers? If you've been in church a long time, you know how we kind of, at the end of all our prayers, so like, you know, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And I'll be honest that like I've gotten in a really bad habit of kind of just tacking that on at the end of my prayers all the time. Like in Christ's name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Nothing wrong with that. But the idea of that is nothing in the Bible that says you have to add that to the end of every prayer. It's not like, you know, like you write like a letter and you're like, love, Kyle, you know. It's not like the way we sign off our prayers, you know. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us to pray that way. But really, the idea comes from a good place. It comes from this, is that when we pray in Christ's name, that what it means is this. We're praying in the authority of Jesus. Because not only are we called to intercede for others, but here's the cool thing, is that Jesus himself is always interceding for you. That he's always interceding. I gave you the example, Romans 8, 34. Paul says this, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That the picture now is that Jesus, after he ascended to heaven, is now at the right hand of the Father, the place of privilege and authority and blessing. He's there always pleading God himself for us. That he's always reminding God of the sacrifice that he's provided for us. So we always are view, always viewed as righteous before him. But also anything that we pray to God about that Jesus is always there interceding for us. You know, almost kind of bringing up God's attention over and over again. Hey, look at my child here and look what they need. Look at my child here, look what they need. That Jesus is always bringing to God's attention the needs that we have. He intercedes for us. And because of that, it means that we can be confident and bold in our prayers. Because we have Jesus' authority when we go to him. That we don't have to be concerned about, man, well, like, I've had a pretty rough week. It's been like three days since I prayed. Does God even want to care and hear about my prayers? And God's not up there in heaven disappointed, like, man, like, why has it been so long since you prayed? No, your approval by God is not based on your own prayer life or your own Bible study life, your quiet time, whatever. Those are all great things you should do. But your approval with God is based on the righteousness of Christ, on what he has done. He's always interceding for you and pleading for you. You can always come to him whenever. He's not going to be disappointed or bummed out or, you know, just like looking at you with irritation. He loves to have his children draw close to him that we can always have that boldness and confidence. So to pray in Christ's name means that we can come to God in that authority and confidence that we have in Jesus. 
And the idea is like this. It's, it's like the idea between some random person coming up to me on the street and asking me for some money versus Haley coming up and asking me for some money. Like my relationship with her is going to make me way more likely to be like, hey, Haley, I'll give you whatever you need. I will, I'll take care of your needs because I love you. You're my wife. You know, we're in this covenant thing together. But some random person comes up to me on the street and says, hey, man, I need five bucks. I'm way more like, I don't really know you. I don't know what you want five bucks for. Like, I'm not sure if I'm going to give it to you, you know. But that relationship opens the door. And the same idea is uh, here in prayer, that the relationship we have to God through Christ means that we can always draw near to him because he loves us, we're his kids, and we can have boldness in him. Last thing, and we'll be done. A few practical helps in intercession. Uh, A few ways that have helped me are, as you're praying for people, for yourself and for other people, a great thing to do is keep some kind of journal or notes or something to keep up with what you're praying for. I happen to love the notes app on my phone. I keep up with a list of uh, all the different people that I meet with on a regular basis, and I keep up with their prayers, and I keep up with updates and all things like that. Maybe my phone's not the best place because it's like one notification away from distraction, but for me, I've been using my phone. I know many people that use um, journals, like Noah loves to write the prayer journal. Um, I know people that do index cards. Um, In that Paul Miller Miller book, he makes a big case for making a prayer card where you put the person's name, you put their needs on there, and you put any scripture that you've thought that applies to their situation, and you pray that scripture while praying over them, which is kind of cool. So you can use index cards. They're they're not just for memorizing vocabulary. They can be for, you know, uh, praying for people. So, but have some kind of method to keep up with who you're praying for, what those things are, because it really, it's super helpful when you get to some sit down time uh, in prayer with God to not be like, okay, so what? Was I praying about for Jacob? Like it was something about school. I don't know. But if you have it written down, it's like, oh yeah. God, let me, let me come to you right now on this issue. So having that written down is super helpful. It's been really helpful for me. And so I want to encourage you in that. And the last thing is this. I want to remind you that we are doing this challenge the next couple of weeks where I'm encouraging you and challenging you to spend 10 minutes a day in prayer. Just 10 minutes a day that may seem like a long time, may seem like a short time to you. But over the next you know, three weeks, I guess, while we're still in this series, not that you stop praying when we're done, but even specifically in this series, I want to encourage you, you know, to dedicate 10 minutes a day uh, to prayer um, with God. I've heard from some of you already that it's been a huge benefit. It's really been you know, bringing a lot of health and vitality to your prayer life. Keep at it. That's awesome. I love to hear those stories. Okay. But I want to pray for us. And then we have a few questions to discuss and we'll be done. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the authority of Jesus. We come to you uh, made clean uh, by his blood, by his sacrifice, so we can come, come boldly to you. Knowing that you know what we need before we ask it, but you, you ask us to come and to put our requests before you because you love us. You care about what's going on. And you want to really, in some mysterious way, use our prayers to partner with you to shape, uh, shape history. And so we come and we ask that you would give us that perspective of prayer, that we wouldn't think smallly of it, we wouldn't think lightly of it, but that we would really see prayer as a huge privilege and opportunity, or to come before you, to ask you to move, and then trust you to work. So I pray that you would give all these students tonight confidence and boldness in prayer. I pray that you would give them just increased conviction to really make prayer a central part of their walk with you, and that the things that you're working in their hearts, that you're really burdening them with, I pray that you would give them a great confidence to want to come before you daily, even multiple times a day, and bring those things to you in prayer. That the different ways that you've given them passions for things, that they would come to you in prayer. That we wouldn't try to rely on our own strength, but they would, would come to you, because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. I pray that you would guide our discussion tonight. You would use it to draw us closer to you. Amen.